Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And happy Monday. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge. I will never ask you for a dollar out of your pocket for this podcast. But you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Snapshots in Hockey History and on Twitter at Snapshots in. If you thought some of the other intros were short, this one's going to really be short. It's 7.20 and I got to be at work at 8 o'clock, but I want to get this interview out there. We had Craig Hartsburg on. I just did this interview last week. Craig was a very, very nice guest. Really enjoyed talking to him. We reviewed his 95-96 season as the head coach of the Chicago Blackhawks, which was his first season in the National Hockey League as a head coach. And uh, yeah, I got some great stories. We talked about Jeremy Roenick, Tony Amonti. Uh, Dennis Savard, some 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 fun stuff for sure. The reason we chose the 95-96 season in addition to being his first is this is one of my favorite seasons in hockey. This was kind of a fun time, I think. This is when they started having like the glow puck on Fox or or whatever. Like, I can't even remember what that thing was called, but it would, it would highlight the puck and, and it was blue and it would streak across the screen. It was pretty crazy. Uh, so that's why we covered this season, and uh, the Hawks ended up doing well. We did not get into playoffs because we spent so much time talking about the regular season, um, but I think he gave some valuable insight as a head coach. First head coach we've had on, I think, that's uh, head coached in the NHL. Well, that's not true. Doug McLean was on a couple weeks ago. So um, anyways, take it away. Here it is, our interview with Craig Hardsburg. So... For you recovering your first season in the NHL as a head coach, it's the summer of 95. You just come off a rocking season with the Guelph Storm as a first-year head coach with them. Former Storm GM Mike Kelly was quoted as saying, as good as we thought he'd be when we hired him, he was two or three times better than that. We were picked probably third in our division, and I have to say he made us 20 points better. So, you know, everybody's after you at this point, and according to an article in the Chicago Tribune on June 27th, Five teams asked permission to talk to you. So I got to ask, what attracted you to Chicago? And, and who were some of the other teams, do you remember, that were kind of interested? Well, it is it is a long time ago. So first of all, trying to remember everything that went on. But uh, I was honored, first of all, to have people in the National Hockey League want me to come and be their head coach, not in you know, Chicago. There was uh, a few other teams, I believe. I talked to Calgary and also talked to uh, Florida Panthers. Um, but Chicago, it was, it, it, you know, my original six, uh, it was very familiar, obviously, from my playing days, the the, the Chicago State, you know, you, we didn't play in the stadium when I coached there, but just the atmosphere, the hockey atmosphere in Chicago was was outstanding. And and then uh, going through the interview process, it was uh, when Chicago asked me to be their head coach, it was certainly an easy decision for me to say yes. And uh, I was I was pretty excited as a young young coach to to coach one of the the original six franchises in the National Hockey League. So it was, it was a pretty exciting time for not just for me, but my whole family. I, I bet. And I mean, and, and I was shocked when I read this. 
it was reported on the 27th that you were talking and then a day later the 28th it was reported you got the job for for getting a job in the nhl i mean what's that the interview process even like do you re- you recall do you remember oh yeah it was uh it was pretty interesting actually we uh i flew in a couple days before that and uh you know went to the united center to meet with uh, bob pulford and 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 mr wirtz and we weren't in the interview in, in the office very long, uh, probably an hour or so, and then we we went out on Mr. Wirtz's boat, and <laughs> uh, and really that's where the interview really took place. We you know met with uh, with Mr. Wirtz, Rocky Wirtz, uh, trying trying to think of who else was there. By obviously Bob Pulford, Bob Murray, and. Uh, we went for a boat ride and talked about uh, philosophies, life in general, hockey, and then went for dinner in uh, Chicago. I can't remember the restaurant, but obviously we took the boat and got off and had had dinner. And and then at the end of the night, they offered me the job. And, and uh, you know, I was, you know, obviously there was a, still a process to go through to, you know, to figure out a contract and everything, but it was, uh, it, it was pretty pretty amazing time and you know i remember going back to the hotel that night probably about 11 o'clock and uh, calling my wife back home she was in guelph and i said uh they just offered me the job and she you know she, that you could hear the i think she dropped the phone actually the phone <laughs> dropped so, so i i just i can't even imagine that must have been such a know, long I, day you know, you you start oh, out for an well, hour. It was. Oh, for sure. For- yeah, we actually. I flew. I, I believe I flew in that morning from from Toronto, and and so it was all day, and and then it was it was kind of surreal. So it was it was really a exciting and interesting process, really, to go through. So the announcement of your new position takes place. You're a new head coach in the National Hockey League. Probably, I would think, since your playing days, your ultimate goal you've now reached. What's the first order of business going into the 95 and 96 season? What do you start to do as a head coach to, to get ready for the season? Well, it was a good thing is we I had plenty of time. It wasn't like I, I was hired in, in mid-season or right before the training camp. So we had lots of time to, to plan. I had to, I had my, my first, obviously the first thing I wanted to make sure I did was, is find uh, assistant coaches mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that would, uh, that would be obviously the players would would enjoy working with and and learn from and and then also that were going to be a, a a good support for me. Uh, obviously, as a, for a rookie head coach in the National Hockey League, I, I, it was a pretty important step for me to make sure that I had good people with me. Uh, and then and then reach out to talk to some of the players and and uh, you know it was a team that was a veteran team. They were uh, they've had they had success and. And, uh, you know, I, I, it it was, it was exciting at the same time, you know, it was somewhat worrisome because, you know, the the veteran players that that had some success, I wasn't going to come in and, and try to completely change everything, but I certainly had my ideas on how the game should be played and, and, uh, how the team should be built. So it was an exciting summer and, and a busy summer. The training camp starts on September 12th. And you start off training camp by announcing the newest team captain in Black for the Blackhawks is Chris Chelios. And you said it just now. You had some veterans on this team. It was an older team. Why choose Chris Chelios as opposed to maybe a Tony Amante or, or, or Bernie Nichols? Nothing against those players, but why Chelios? Well, it was 
pretty easy choice for me. He was really the best. He was the best defenseman in the National Hockey League at that point. Um, he played the game with his heart on his sleeve. Uh, play, he played every shift like it was his last, and and just wanted to. He wanted to win every night, and uh, so it, you know. And again, talking to people around the team, talking to other players and not asking their opinion, but just, you know, his name would be brought up all the time by other players, how important he was. And so it was not a, it was pretty easy decision as it went along through that summer. It was, uh, to me, it was no doubt that he was the captain of that group. And I'm assuming you talked to him a little bit over the summer. So you kind of had a feel for him kind of yeah, we, going yeah, into we camp. Met, we met, we met when I, you know, for, especially first when I first got hired and then, then later in the summer, when I had decided that he was going to be the captain, I, I, I talked to him about it, and, uh, and you know, Chelly was Chelly was a great player. He just, you know, the biggest thing for me with Chelly was just put him on the ice and let him play, and uh, you know, and there wasn't, uh, you know, he was always receptive and open to to different ideas, but. The bottom line was he would uh, he would always find a way every night. He was uh, and I think I believe he ended up winning the, the Norris Trophy that year. And uh, but just oh, a, 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 just a specimen of a person as a player. Like just his conditioning level was was second to none. As the years that I've been in the National Hockey League, I've never seen a player that could play that long and that hard. I know Darren famous. McCarty told me a story that he used to do what was called the ride from hell where he would, is that, is that, so we would take the bike and put it in the sauna. Was he doing that back then? <laughs> oh, I think he did it his whole career. Unbelievable. Was a, he was a, uh, like I said, he was a specimen. There was, when you look at him, you know, without a shirt on, you would never think this guy was, you know, he, he, there was not a lot to him. He was strong. His, his forearms were so strong and everything, but, uh, it just his competitive nature and his uh, will to 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 be the best player and will to win was what uh, really what and his and his hockey sense was what made Chris Chelios what he was. When I think of training camp, I always think of the rookies trying to make a first impression, and we had that at this camp. You had rookies in camp, but we also had a veteran who was coming to camp looking for really a second chance. The legendary Bob Probert had been suspended the prior season, but was making a comeback. And did you chat with Bob at all? And, and kind of where did you see Bob fitting in every in the team? I mean, this was a, a comeback for him. Well, I, you know what? I Obviously, this, his story was well known to, to everybody, not just people in hockey, but uh, to everybody in the, the, in the world, really, that, that, that knew anything about Bob Prober. They knew his story. And, and I knew... Of Bob Prober because I obviously played against him in in Detroit and I knew what he would bring to a hockey team. We knew it would also also take some time for him to get back in his timing and and getting to game you know the, the rhythm of playing it playing in the National Hockey League and so we we're excited to have him. I think the the players were were really excited to have him. He uh, he, he was such a good person around the team and, and a great teammate. So uh, again, we, we, we wanted to get him. We wanted to get him going and get playing as, as and as much as we could early, so that he could get back to to where to where we all knew that Bob Probert was as a player, not just his his toughness and his you know his his fighting and all that. He he was a good player 
and uh, he ended up playing a pretty important role for us through that year, not just, you know, his physicalness, but he played a lot with Brent Sutter and, and uh, on a line that I think was, was really effective for us, especially as the season went on. So training camp starts off, and it's a little bit of a bumpy preseason. You know, Bob Probert, he received a match penalty during one game. Joe Murphy gets a game misconduct. <laughs> Ethan Moreau managed to score his first goal against NHL competition. Tony Amonti had a two-goal game. So it was, it was up and down. I think that's safe to say. Yeah. But but overall, the record was kind of disappointing. It was 1-7-1, and and it's just preseason, but you're a first-year head coacher. Are you worried at all? Do, do you recall if, if you were well, nervous? Well, there was, there was certainly uh, – I, I, I wouldn't say there was any – and where, where, where there was a point where there was like, oh my God, what's going on here? Right, but right. There was there was some concern, but I, again, through training camp, I think we used lots of different lineups, and uh, and again, a veteran team, and and we probably changed some things that they were as far as system system wise. So there there was some things that they were getting used to, and and again, a veteran team through. And, and they had a good playoff run the year before. So it wasn't like there was uh, an urgency, uh, especially on the players' part, to, you know, to win exhibition games. And, and I get that. It was, uh, uh, it was more of a process to get ready for the season. And, and, and again, there was some things that we were probably changing in, in how they played. But uh, uh, so we weren't, there wasn't a panic. But, you know, as a first-year coach, I, I, I will – go home at night and say, Oh my God, I hope, right. not, I hope this is not what we are. But it certainly, as the year went on, it was, uh, it, it, they showed their true colors. You did say that you changed a few things and I know this was 20 years ago, so I don't expect you to remember everything, but, but what system did you try to implement with these guys that was different from what they had previously? Well, I think we, we did put in a little bit more structure, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, X's and O's defensively. Um, and again, I think it's probably more without the puck than with the puck that mm-hmm. we, we, we tried to, uh, to adopt a, you know, a little bit more structure. So our defensive game was, was solid. And, and uh, again, it was, is, you know, when you hire a coach, you, you know, you hire his personality, you hire his beliefs and you, and you, you know, you, the things I believed in, I, this is what I tried to, uh, to get across to our guys and so there was and i know there was a few things that were were different than what they they did the, the previous years opening night was on the road against the san jose sharks the saw the sharks ugh, excuse me the hawks had a solid outing with chris Chelios picking up the game winner in a four to three win over the san jose sharks i gotta ask craig you've worked probably your whole life to get here you got your first win in the books how'd it feel <laughs> It was pretty exciting, actually. We we played a really good hockey game. It was, a, and I remember that game because you know San Jose was a pretty good team, and it was back and forth, and and then Shelley scored the winner, jumping up in the play, and uh, so it was pretty exciting. And it was you know not just for me, but you know for our coaching staff with uh, with with Dirk Graham and and Lauren Henning. Uh, so we were pretty excited, and 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 Shelley presented the puck to me after the game. So, oh, that's cool. Uh, it was pretty exciting. It was. It was it was cool, and but you know what? It was just uh, the first of uh, eighty-two games, so we we tried to to enjoy it. But then uh, you know we we knew we had lots of battles ahead of us. You said it. It's the first of eighty-two games. A few nights later, the team was in Southern California, and we're not going to go game by game. But you had a tough loss. <laughs> yeah, no, I promise you, we won't. I promise you, we'll be here all night. Which I could chat with you all night, but I'm not going to do that to you. 
A tough loss against the LA Kings in OT. It was 6-5. to five. The goal was scored as a result of what some considered a weak call. And the NHL was starting to call a lot of obstruction penalties at the time. This was when the referee would actually make the O sign with his hand whenever he was calling something. Yeah. What do you remember about these rule changes? How hard was it to get players to adapt after really the, the clutching grab that we had had from, I guess, the mid-80s until then? Well, I- you know what? It, it, it was the players that had to, to look at it and say, "Listen, this is the way it is." You know, we could, we showed them video. We, you know, the NHL would send us video on on what the rules were. But really, the end of the day is, you know, the players themselves had to look at it and say, "You know what? We can complain and we can uh, not like it, but this is the league we're playing in, and the players have to to, to adjust." And obviously, we had to continue to remind you know their sticks and, and all those type of things the interference on floor checking that were that the norm before we the players had to change and uh you know as again it was not just our team every team in the league so uh it, as as the game went on throughout the year i think everybody adapted better and better as the season went on did you think those changes were needed? Because I feel like we almost then went through a period again where we got away from that. And then we've gotten back to, they don't call it obstruction anymore, but but they're calling these ticky-tacky plays. Is that just the cycle of how hockey works? Well, I, th- I think the game has changed, obviously, the the way the way it's played. From a young age, you know, when you're talking 7 8 till to your 27 or and an NHL player the game has changed it's mm-hmm. become a it's become a you know a, a really a highly skilled fast game that still has contact but you know and there was there was lots of skill before but i think there was ways to slow people down and i think the league has 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 changed that and i, I think it's made for a in a a faster, more exciting game, but all, and I also t- I think at times it becomes a little bit more dangerous too because you know with the, no obstruction and those things, I think there's some there's a chance for some really violent collisions. But but I think the players have even learned that now to to uh, to respect each other and 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 to be careful in those situations. But the game's changed, and I think it's, it's always for me is there's changes always for the better. Well, I love that you made a change with one of your lines, and they become the hottest line on the team through the first few games. You put Bob Probert, Dennis Savard, and Eric Daze together. Talk about the odd couple line, but it worked. (laughs) Savard and Probert each had four points. Where does this crazy idea come from to put three guys that are complete opposites from one another together? Well, I, I can't remember everything, that the reasons and stuff, but I, I think when you look at the three, I think Eric Daze was a young French Canadian player that was, uh, you know, still learning to get, learning to play in the National Hockey League, and 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 savvy with being the veteran and through all kinds of uh, successes in the National Hockey League could help him. Uh, and then again, Proby was Proby. We all I looked at Proby as I remember him in Detroit playing with Steve Eiserman and. You know, he he was up and down the wing, did his job, got the puck in, made the plate right plays, went to the net, and and provided some toughness for for Stevie. So, uh, you know, it, it was it, it maybe at the time it didn't make sense, but for me it, and, and the coaching staff, it did. There was it, it uh, there was always a reason, and sometimes things don't work, and you just have to break it up real quick. But uh, they had a little bit of success, especially early. 
I loved it, and I, I I expected that you weren't going to remember stuff, but I knew that if I asked you, you'd be able to explain that to me because as an outsider looking in, I, I love this line, but I'm thinking, what's the reasoning behind it? This is awesome. And, and, and moving forward in the season, because we're not going to go, as I said, game by game, the home opener occurs. Uh, Eddie Belfour shut down the Pens 5-1 to one against Mario Lemieux and, and the Pittsburgh yeah. Penguins, and, and you know, over the next four games, the team struggled a little bit. They'd go 2-1-1. One and one. Um, one player that had a bit of a tough time adjusting was Joe Murphy, and and, and Joe's gotten a lot of press lately, but I, I'd like to kind of highlight, because I don't know if people really know what kind of player he was. Can you talk a little bit about what you recall about Joe as a hockey player? Well, first of all, his physically and his, his physical skills were as, as good as any top player in the National Hockey League. His, his ability to skate, handle the puck, shoot, uh, he was, it was, he was, uh, well deserving of the first, I believe he was the first overall pick with Detroit. Correct. Um, and you know, and he wasn't a small player too. He had a good size. Um, you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, Joel was all had his ups and downs through his career and, and it was all to me, it was just trying to find the right place in the lineup for him uh, uh was, was probably the, the most important thing and, and in chicago he seemed to always play well with bernie nichols mm-hmm. and, and at, at the end of the day that's where everybody said, well, he plays best with bernie and i think bernie bernie would talk to him a lot bernie spent a lot of time with with joel and uh talking about the game and and joel wasn't as, a, a real x's and o's and, and technical player he played with emotion and passion and, and skill and and uh, uh and i think bernie helped him you know again maybe even covered up some of his mistakes when he did play with him as far as the uh you know the technical part of the game but uh he was uh really a really a talented player joe murphy was uh, as talented player as, as we had in chicago he didn't stay frustrated very long, though. The next game, he had three assists at the Kiel Center against the St. Louis Blues. And I want to highlight this Blues game, not necessarily specifically this one, but the rivalry between the Hawks and the Blues during this era. Um, this actual game had 100 penalty minutes in it. You were quoted in the Chicago Tribune as saying, it was, you didn't know why Chris Pronger jumped onto Keith Carney. And I know you don't remember the specific game, but what do you remember about that rivalry between the two teams as a head coach? Well, it was pretty heated, and you know, when I was involved with the the rivalry between the Minnesota North Stars and Chicago, and and it felt very, very much the same when when we played St. Louis in in, in early in that season. You could notice it was that kind of hate for each other, and uh, they had a, they had a good hockey club, and obviously Chicago was a good hockey club, but that rivalry was had went on for years just like the the North Star Chicago rivalry was because of the the division playing in the old Norris division so there were, there certainly was some hate and some passion in those games for sure team's next game was against the Colorado Avalanche and this is the first time you've seen probably Colorado as a head coach they would go on to win the Stanley Cup finals on the, I've asked a couple people this Doug McLean was just on the podcast and we chatted about this team when you talk about hockey dynasties, I feel like you never hear about Colorado. You coached against them. On teams in the past, let's say, three, four decades, where would you rank them? Are they a top team? Are they in the top ten? Any thoughts on them? Well, I think so, because they were, they were obviously a great team, and they any great team that wins cups always seems to have that one-two punch at center ice, and 
Forsberg and Sackick were, you know, probably, well, they were, you know, because they won cups, the, probably the two best, you know, centermen, you know, one-two punch centermen in the league. And uh, they played fast. They, you know, they had great goaltending, obviously, in Patrick Waugh. And uh, they had a little bit of everything, too. They, you know, they had some grit. Mike Ricci and Mike Keane was it, were there after the trade with for Patrick Waugh. And so they were a great team. And, you know, we... We thought we were close, and we were right there with them once we did get to the playoffs. But uh, they were young, and uh, you know they they had the had the legs that you know to, to get them through to the Stanley Cup, and, and they won. So uh, great team, and, and and obviously Hall of Fame players that uh, that led the way for them. As the games continue to go on, one player that kind of starts to stick out in the score sheet is this young rookie kid named Eric Daze, who you mentioned was a French-Canadian player. He was a fourth-round pick, and he scored four goals in four games. And can you talk a little bit about him as a player and how he grew and what you saw, how you saw him change over the season? Well, you know, he he was a huge man, like uh, that. You know, you didn't really appreciate him until you you saw him in games because he could uh, he could skate for a big guy like that. Once he got he once he got his feet going, he, he was tough to stop. He played he played his off wing and and shot the puck extremely hard and uh, really a shy kid that you know. But he worked extremely hard and uh, you know he ended up. You know, unfortunately, his career was cut short, I believe, because of back injury. But he, he was a good player and a really smart, hard, hard-working guy that, you know, wasn't physical, but he was so strong on the puck. He was, especially coming down his off wing, he could uh, protect it well and cut to the net. And Again, you see lots of potential there early with him. And, and uh, again, I think Dennis Savard really was a big, was a big key in, in getting him adjusted to playing in the National Hockey League. I love how you just mentioned Dennis Savard because I want to touch on him. Dennis is getting towards the end of his career. You have Eric Daze there, and we've I, I've always wanted to ask this. How is a coach, you've got a guy who's done everything, seen everything. You've got a guy that's seen nothing. What do you have to do differently in order to get the most out of those guys? Well, I you know, I think with with savvy, I think we, we tried to talk to him a lot because it there was a lot of game there were some games where you know his energy level wasn't high as high as it you know, you wanted it just because of his age and the schedule and, and so again trying to, to monitor where he was at and then you know, Eric, I think we, we just tried to help teach him the game and teach him what uh, what it meant, how he had to play in the National Hockey League and how, he, you know, what he had to do as a player to have success. And uh, he had the physical tools, obviously, and we were just help trying to build his toolbox for him. So the team runs into a little bit of a struggle. At this point, it's around 9-8-1, and one, and... You put the team through a rigorous practice after a loss against the San Jose Sharks, and you guys hit a seven-game road trip with six games on the West Coast before wrapping everything up in Madison Square Garden. The seven-game stint started off a little shaky with a loss in Colorado, but following the loss, the Western Conference powerhouse, the team went on undefeated the rest of this trip. You guys put together a hell of a run. And I hear about guys talking about how road trips can really bring a team together. As a head coach... What do you do on the road, or do you do anything on the road, I guess I should ask, to kind of keep tries together? And I'm not asking you to get anybody in trouble by any means. But- no, we, you know, that's, that's the, that is the players. You know, we obviously get 
spend time, more time with the players too, because we're on the planes and we're, you know, we're, we're at the hotels, you see them, you're at the rink and there's, but you know what it is, the players that, you know, they go out for dinner, they get, they get a chance to, to really get to know players. Maybe they won't get to know at home because, Mm -hmm. because of the, uh, the younger guys hanging out with the older guys. And so it's, it is a good time for teams to build. And, And I think it was an important part of our season, you know, getting away and, and getting players uh, again to, to build that team and getting them to know each other. And so like we did have some younger players that were maybe newer to the team. So again, it just helps people get comfortable uh, in the group. So as a head coach though, other than seeing the guys around the hotel, it, typically the dinners and everything, it wasn't a team function. It was just the guys would do their own thing. Yes. You oh, know, okay. at night, at night the players would go out and, but you know, when you see them for breakfast and you, you get a chance to talk to them, away from the rink a little bit and just as humans and not, uh, uh, not just hockey players. So, you, you know, it, it is a good way for, for coaches also to, to again, to, to, to get to know your players better when you do go on a road trip, not like you're hanging out all day long, but you just you happen to be going down the elevator with a couple guys one day, you know, on the trip and just chatting away about something else besides, uh, how we're going to forecheck tonight. So it's always always good. You mean there's life outside of hockey? I would have never guessed. I thought in the NHL, that's all it was. Well, once you're out of the NHL, you find out there's life after hockey. But it seems like when you're in it, playing and coaching, it's like every day you're consumed by it. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. So you're on the road. Are you guys reviewing tape constantly? Are you constantly meeting with your assistant coaches? What's an average day look like for a coach on the road? Well, you know, again, that was, it's a long time ago, I think. And again, I retired just a few years ago. And I think as as years went on, there were certainly uh, more video and easier ways to do it with being computerized Mm -hmm. and everything at uh, back then, I, I believe we we're still doing the VHS uh, tapes, and and you know, you, oh, you probably so had to lug them all the way through the airport. Those oh, giant yeah, bags, yeah, oh yeah, there was. But you know, as time went on, it became computerized, and it was everything was on your laptop. So, uh, just based on now, I, I know now there's, there's probably a lot more video now, just because it's easier to do, and it's all uh, it's all computerized. But uh, we did do a lot of video and and reviewed stuff and you know the uh with with your staff you you know you try to meet every day trying to make sure that their their word is uh you you listen to them they see want their opinion on what they are seeing and and things moving forward so it's a it it truly is a staff that coaches a team and you know the head coach has a lot of responsibility but is a staff that uh, does does the coaching it's not just one guy so at this point in the season this is where things get interesting because the team is now a right around 500 and you make a little bit of a goalie change which i think surprises a lot of people at the time you end up bringing out jeff hackett for eddie belfour and this was all performance based we're in mid-december and the team goes the rest of the year without a loss the team would win it its next nine games up until this point it, it had been kind of up and down but i i have to ask what led to that kind of change and and how did ed react because arguably probably one of the best goalies in the world it might have been a little hard for him to adjust to having to be a backup for once well you know what it was uh again we were in a situation where we we looked at it and said okay hack has done his job when we've asked of him and 
you know, Eddie maybe probably had some had some struggles early in the year, and uh, maybe even some health issues with his back. He's, you know, he had he had always had a had a bit of an issue with his back. So, and then when Hack went in, we decided if he plays well, we're gonna we're gonna play him. And, you know, we're it wasn't like. Uh, we had a long a month plan to say we we're going to play Jeff Hackett every game. It, it, he just played so well that uh, he deserved to play. And, uh, you know, we knew still going forward that Eddie was our number one guy. And, and once, once his, uh, we got his game going and, and his health in order that he was going to be the guy go down the stretch and into playoffs. But uh, Jeff played well and he was, uh, he was a big part of our team. So he deserved to play. I guess I just was a head, if I was a head coach and I'm not, hence why I'm sitting here interviewing you, I would be kind of a little worried that, oh, my God, I don't want to upset my ace. You know, no, I don't think he, I don't think that he'd like every game and he, he wasn't playing. I could tell him all this. Eddie was a competitor and wanted to play. And uh, but I, I also he also understood that, you know, Jeff was playing very well. So he, he was fine when he knew when his time came, he was going to he was going to step back in and, and be a good goaltender and 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 then and hopefully be even fresher down the stretch for us and in the playoffs. Just a, a tough thing to balance, but it, it, you definitely did it. And at this point, we're halfway through the season. Things are rocking. You got to be feeling great. Did you talk to the Wurtz family at all during this? Did they have any feedback for you, or, or for that matter, GM Bob Pulliford? How often did you guys communicate? Oh, quite quite often. You know, Pulley was around quite a bit, but Bob Murray was also a big part of the the management staff. So there, you know. We're, they were they were good people to work for for me. I, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed my time there in Chicago working with them, and uh, it, you know it was just like any other team you worked for. There's there's communication from management, and you know they you know how players are playing. They're asking your opinion on this and that, and then, you know they're uh, they were they were they were very positive with the how the season was coming. And you know I think everybody early. We were, we were all a little bit impatient, but we all understood that it it was going to start to come as you know as the season went on because of the veteran uh, influence we had on our team. So as the season went on, I think they were they were pretty excited about uh, moving forward and getting into the playoffs. So the winning streak came to a halt against the St. Louis Blues in early January when the team lost three to one, and it doesn't get easier for the Blackhawks as you go up against the Detroit Red Wings. And I have to ask. They're loaded. They had like nine Hall of Famers on this team. How the heck do you, as a coach, defend against the Russian Five? It was tough. They were they were a hard team to, to play against as players, but they were really hard to coach against. Scotty Bowman was obviously the maybe the greatest coach of all time, so they were a hard team to to really come up with matchups. And uh, you know their style of play was so much different than anybody else in the National Hockey League at that point. And, you know, we prided ourselves in being, uh, a, you know, a really good, hard, physical team. And uh, so we, there was some some games I remember. I don't remember every game, but I remember there was a, we had some issues with them. We had some tough times, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, again, stop, like you say, there was Russian five and then you, know, you add in Iserman and, and guys like that. So they were, they were a hard team to play against and they were, they were a great team. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you to clarify okay. something for me. <laughs> January 18th, the Chicago Tribune wrote an article about a report that had been leaked to the press that Patrick Poulin, Sergei Krivokrasov, Jeff Shantz, Mike Propovic, and Ethan Moreau had been offered for the great one, Wayne Gretzky. 
This hadn't been the first time that Gretzky's name had been associated with the Blackhawks. Over 20 years later, can you set the record straight? Do you remember? Is there any truth no. to this? I, you know what? I don't, I don't remember, but I, I think I would remember if, if there was actually a trade that was possible for Wayne Gretzky. I, I don't. I don't think that was, I, I'd be, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not just, I can't remember, but I, I'm pretty sure that if there was a chance that we were going to get Wayne Gretzky, that I would remember that. I would think you would too. And I just yeah. had to ask cause it was in the papers and I think your answer was uh, spot on. So this brings up a, a great question for, for me as a head coach, do you have a say when treads take place? Do you, do, how does that go down with the GM? Well, I think they they certainly certainly GMs, you know, they they consult in their coach in you know where players can fit on your team and you know obviously what you're going to give up if that's going to create a, a you know a situation in your team if it's going to be a problem. But at the end of the day, the coach can, gives his opinion and uh, you know the GM then makes his decision and and uh, I, I would think that any good GM if a coach is adamant he doesn't want them want to make the trade that he, he probably is not going to make it but uh, and, and and I think most coaches they'll see the GM side of it too so I think they they kind of I don't think there's any too many trades made in the National Hockey League where the coach is, is, is angry and can't make that trade and, and it's done so I think for the most part you get on the same page and you you kind of see both sides of it and see how it's going to help your team and and uh you kind of work you work together with the GM on it it's not you know I don't think the GM just comes in and say well we're trading this guy and not I don't think that ever happens there, there has to be some you know the GM I would believe would want the coach to be comfortable with the players he's he's coaching would make sense that he has a say in it. And following the All-Star break, the team headed to Canada to play Ottawa and Toronto, and the Blackhawks picked up a win against the Senators and then tied the Maple Leafs after a controversial call that favored the Leafs, but we're not going to go there. But even bad calls couldn't keep the Hawks down as the team didn't lose over its next seven games, going 6-0-1. So things are going well. During this period, though, a tr an article appeared in the Chicago Tribune that said you were looking to bolster your defense. So the trade lines that, excuse me, the trade deadlines coming up, and this was a long time ago. But where did was there a certain area where you thought maybe, hey, we might be able to tweak our defense here to make it a little bit better? And and where was that area? Well, again, going back a long ways, and I, you know, I remember, you know, we had Chelly and Suter and Keith Carney. Obviously, was evolving as a player, and I said, I think Steve Smith had some issues health wise and and probably didn't he did. play a whole lot he did you're so, absolutely correct so i think that's probably where we're thinking is that you know we're steve smith has always been a top four guy and his health wasn't great so we're i'm, I'm pretty sure that's probably where we're thinking is can we add somebody that's going to give us uh you know another veteran player or a good solid player in the back end well, and that makes sense in the final game of this winning streak i think you might remember Jeremy Roenick was hit by Jeff Courtnall that broke Jeremy's jaw. During that oh, same that, yeah. yep, during that same game, Bob Probert was suspended one game for a high-sticking Tony Twist. <laughs> I remember that too. <laughs> Can you kind of walk through what you thought of all that and what you remember about it? Well, I don't remember the game, but I remember those plays, and I, and I remember losing Jeremy. And it, it was obviously we didn't—you don't want to lose any player, but he was obviously a key part of our team. And then 
with with an injury like that. And then Proby, Proby, Proby just had had enough of. And we we talked to Proby quite a bit that year. Is, is that we want him to play right? And and when there was a time and a place where he had to, you know, do something to protect somebody or himself or. And but we didn't want him just go out every night and fight somebody that was not even close to the, you know, as skilled as he was, and and played the minutes that he did on our team, and 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 not that we we didn't re- he didn't have respect for the other team's tough guys, but he we didn't really want him just fight for the sake of fighting. So, anyways, I remember that that Tony Twist was you know obviously a a tough player and he, he was challenging to probably a lot in that game. And we, we really wanted probably to play and eventually probably just had had enough of, of Tony twist. And I think he, I think he got a high sticking, but I believe it was more of an elbow penalty than, than anything. He, he was a major league elbow in my mind. I've never, it was <laughs> well, it, he, he more. I think if he did that in today's game, he would have got a lot more than one game. To tell you the truth. <laughs> well, it was interesting. You had a problem with that hit then, and you, as you do now, I read about it in the paper afterwards. And and Bob Pulliford actually went to the league about discipline because it looked like Jeff Courtnall was not suspended for breaking Jeremy Roenick's jaw, and and it sounded like it was a very very similar play. So very good memory on your part for twenty five yeah. plus years ago. Um, very, uh, very impressive. Following the game on February 8th, the team finished their road trip in Pittsburgh with a loss, but picked up a couple wins at home. And then things kind of go on a little bit of a slide. You lose seven games and, you know, we're in February, March at this point. Are guys just exhausted? Is this a hard? How do you keep guys focused in an 82 game season when you get to this point in the year? Well, uh, obviously you don't want to go in those slides, but I think, I, I think, again, I think that's what happens. You get, you get, a, we had a, a veteran group that, you know, we're in a good position, and then, you know, they've. There could be some fatigue. There could be looking forward to, you know, to, to getting to the playoffs. But anyways, they're. they're and again, I can't remember the whole every night what happened, but uh, it happens in a year. There's, there's ups and downs, and uh, you know, at the end of the year, you just hope you have a lot more ups. So on March fifth, you end up having a closed door meeting with Steve Smith, Jeremy Roenick, Chris Chelios, Brent Sutter, and Bernie Nichols, as well as Dennis Savard. I know you don't remember what was said in this meeting, but looking back all these years later, what do you think was the message or how did you try to deliver it to say, hey, guys, we got to turn this around? Well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, we, we everybody probably talked and, and, and tried to come up with solutions, not just... Uh, uh, the coaching staff saying, "Here, here's here's what you guys got to do, or here's what's going on." We we probably listened, and you know, and listened to what they were saying, and and uh, knowing that group, the character with the, in that group, that they were concerned, and they were, you know, they they want they were more than they wanted it turned around as much as anybody. So uh, I think it's still again the the leadership of that team was was pretty impressive with those guys. The team turned the tide against the Florida Panthers with an 8-1 to win, followed by two more wins against the Canucks and Islanders. And then during the Islanders game, unfortunately, the team, they dropped like flies. Murray Craven went down. Jeremy Roenick went down. Chris Chelios received a game misconduct for instigating a fight during the game. And you were upset about that call. And, and uh, the, the specific incident, I'm sure, is a blur. But as an NHL coach, do you have an avenue if you're upset with officiating with where you can go? 
Yeah, well, not not publicly anyway. <laughs> Costs a, a lot of money, but no, you, you know what? There's supervisors, and for the most part, the league is uh, they'll listen to coaches. They just don't want you. To, they don't want you getting on the radio and on the TV ripping ripping apart the refereeing. But they certainly will listen to your complaints and not saying that the it it helps. But uh, for the most part, they understand the position that coaches are in and. And uh, especially when you're losing some of your better players because of, uh, you know, questionable calls. So. As we wrap up the regular season, the trade deadline approaches and Bob Pulifer pulls off a trade for Lightning defenseman Enrico Ciccone for Patrick Poulin and Igor Olenoff. When did you find out this was happening and what did you think about this trade? What did you feel Ciccone brought to the team? You know, I, I'm not sure how it all went down, to tell you the truth. But, you know, when he was a young player, played with lots of vim and vigor. A little, he had some toughness, and he played with some passion. And and we knew that we had to, uh, you know, had to get him to fit in as, as quick as we could with, with our group. But I don't remember a lot about when and, and how it all went down, to tell you the truth. As the regular season comes to a close, the team was able to clinch playoff berth. And during the process, Eric Daze reached the 30-goal mark as a rookie. We talked about Eric. Did you see that potential offensive upside when you first had him on oh, the team? Yeah, yeah. For sure, you knew he was he was a goal scorer and he was going to score a lot of goals. And and uh, like I said, I think if he didn't get have back back problems as his career went on, he would have he would have been a you know a highly pro- prolific goal scorer for his whole career. But uh, he, he had he had the touch and he and he certainly wanted to score. He was a big man that was hard to handle coming off the wing as we wrap things up we're not going to get into the playoffs we can do a whole nother episode on that and you've given me plenty of time tonight so the final game of the regular season was a 2-2 tie against Wayne Gretzky and the St. Louis Blues on April 14th 1996 the Hawks finished 12 games over 500 with a record of 40 28 and 14 you made the playoffs and we'll leave that for another time how did you feel though after your first NHL season is there anything you would have done differently Oh, I, you know what? I'm sure there was, but I, I, again, I can't look back now. It's a long time ago, but I, I'm sure there was things I, I, I screwed up and didn't, could have done a dip, did it differently or a better job at. But you know, at the end of the year, I think we ended up uh, a really good, solid team, and we we were pretty excited for you know get, getting to the playoffs and getting into the playoffs, and then moving forward, we thought we had a group that could. Uh, yeah, we had a little bit of everything. We had some. We had good skill, speed. We had good experience and some uh, some top end defensemen, and and obviously one of the best goaltenders in the league, and Eddie, who was who was playing his best hockey at that time. So, uh, playoffs were excited. We were all excited to get started, and uh, the regular season me had some ups and downs, but still at the end it was a pretty successful year. As we wrap it up, one thing I always ask every guest that ever played with Jeremy Roenick or coached him because you're the first person we've had that coach him. Do you have a JR story that you can scare with us that you like? <laughs> I, I just, I don't know if I have one story, but I love JR. He, he came to the rink every day and he loved the game. He loved being at the rink. He, he, he was just full of energy and he, he often we, he just come into my room in our office and we just talk about, you know, the game and uh but i loved i loved coaching jeremy he was uh when the the game was on the line he was he was big time he wanted to he wanted to win and he wanted and he played hard for a skilled guy 
he, there's not many skilled players, you know, from his time and on that played as hard and as physical as he did. So and nothing but respect for Jeremy Roenick. Only one other player I have to ask about, and we didn't really touch on him, and that was Tony Amonti. Yeah. A guy I oh, got. I Tony. The to- Tony was great, too. And he, he was – he was a little. He was out of the, a little bit out of the same cloth as Jeremy because he he loved the rink and he loved playing and uh, he played with so much energy and and uh, again he he had he was a he he played really good for me and I uh, again I loved uh, coaching Tony he was he was a, he was a great person as well. Well, we'll go ahead and before we wrap this up, I give everyone an open forum. Craig, what are you up to now, man? What what are you up to? What are you doing? I'm I'm retired from coaching, but I'm still doing uh, some some part-time development work and a little bit of scouting with Columbus. Um, they have me going and uh, spend some time with their younger defensemen, whether they're playing junior or in the American League, and uh, just you know, again, just trying to to mentor them. And you know, I don't uh, don't put a lot of pressure on things, but I, I certainly want to try to help those guys get to the National Hockey League and help Columbus and. And I've enjoyed it. I, it's not part. It's not full time where I'm traveling all the time. But uh, you know, I, once a month or so, I'll, I'll get out and try to see some of these guys and spend a little bit of time with them. So it's been fun. Want to thank Craig for coming on again. Really enjoyed his interview. It's always fun to talk to these guys. Just a reminder. This will be our second to last show. We're going to take a couple weeks off for the holidays. Next week, I got a show that's going to focus on the World Juniors. It's pretty good. The guest is awesome, and we had a lot of fun doing his interview over the summer. Uh, So we will uh, make sure you tune in for that. That's going to be a good one. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook, on Twitter at Snapshots In. Please leave a five-star review if you enjoy the podcast. It really helps with the algorithms. That's it. Make it a great week. We'll see you guys next week. Sorry this was a short intro and outro. Got to get to my real job. Talk to you soon.